Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Happy Father's Day. I heard uh, recently somebody define, a little boy defined Father's Day as this. They say, well, it's just like Mother's Day, you just don't spend as much. Today we're going to celebrate fathers, and the term father is widely used to talk about biological stepdads, adoptive dads. We uh, use it to talk as well about teachers and mentors who impacted, impacted our lives tremendously by saying they were like a father to me. The biblical idea of fathering is much bigger than biology. Fathering is at the core of being a follower of Jesus and what it means to be a man, even if you never have children. No matter what stage of life you're in, no matter what gender you are, the father role is critical to understand for all of us. Having a healthy father-like relationships in our lives is part of God's design for us to experience growth and health in our relationship with him and with all areas of our life. We're in a summer series called Everyday Wisdom in which we're primarily finding our topics from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, particularly the book of Proverbs, which was written and lar- or edited by uh, King Solomon. Today, we're going to start with King David's words to Solomon on his deathbed in 1 Kings 2, and it says this. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." So from these last words of David to Solomon, two questions emerge that we're going to explore today. What does it mean to be a man? And because David uh, ties being a man to fathering the next generation, what does it mean to be a father? So think about it for a minute. If you were sitting at David's bedside and heard him say, be a man, what images, people, feelings, thoughts, ideas come to mind? For me, it's memories of westerns like John Wayne or growing up pretending to be Daniel Boone when I was young. Anyone remember that? Anybody remember that old series? Sing, sing it with me if you remember it. Daniel Boone was a man. Anybody? Come on. Was, yes, a big man with an eye like an eagle and as tall as a mountain was he. And then the second verse goes, he was a big man. He was brave and he was fearless and he was tough as a mighty oak tree. Cool, huh? What are some of the current icons for masculinity? Well, we might think of the Thor or the Black Panther, right? Come to mind. Strong, determined, do good for all. And frankly, they're all ripped. Here are some of the current memes, right? Here are some of the current memes wrestling with the idea of manhood. Uh, one of them is you, everybody has to have a man card. You've got to punch your ticket on all these things in order to be a real man, right? You need to survive a rattlesnake bite. You know, I'm going to always have a problem with that beard thing because I can never grow a beard. I'm never going to be a man because I can't grow a beard like that. But then that takes you to the next one, which is the manliness meter. All the way from not manly to, I think it should not be almost too manly. That's grossly way too manly. I mean, that guy has more hair out of his ears than I can put on my chin. That's just That's just not right, right? Or the next one here is a series of them. I love Second Amendment. You mean bare arms? 
or Tabasco eye drops or I don't push up, I push the earth down. I mean, that's just, they're fun, they're fun. Interestingly, isn't it, uh, the current, many of the current manly icons increasingly today in our culture reflect the anti-hero. Individuals who do heroic acts, but they lack a moral compass. They have a flawed moral compass, and they do things by their own rules. They're, they're often violent vigilantes who act as judge, jury, and executioner. So examples of this might be Walter White from Breaking Bad, or Captain Jack Sparrow, all you fans out there or Deadpool, or Jason Bourne, right? We like these guys for many reasons, but the rise of the antihero, I think, reflects a shift a little bit in our thinking as a culture where people who act brazenly or heroically on their frustrations or whatever their motives are are respected more than those who exercise restraint. Rather than having a process based on clear values, rationality is pushed aside in favor of instant gratification, instant action. So why are some of our masculine role models becoming more flawed? And I, I, I don't know, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I think maybe some of them might be all the terrorist attacks, the 24-hour news cycle, the wars, the catastrophes, natural disasters have shaken our faith in humanity and, and shaken our faith in the promise of living an honest, hardworking life and doesn't feel that doesn't feel as stable and trustworthy as it once was. Or maybe it's because we see people uh, in these heroes who are, are, are broken and, and we easily relate to them. I mean, part of relating to them, I think, is hoping that they can, they can turn it around and find goodness and happiness uh, because that's what we want for our own lives. We want redemption. None of us want to see evil succeed. We want to see truth and love prevail and, and conquer hate, and, and we hope that no one is too far gone to, for redemption's reach, not even us. And I think that's the reason we're attracted to it. All these issues, though, tend to lead to kind of confusing messages about what it means to be a man. An opinion article written in the Washington Times in 2014, I think, summarizes what many people say in America is a war on masculinity. They say, by well-intentioned overparenting, the agenda-driven entertainment industry, dangerous political correctness, and deliberate political strategy, the result has produced an emasculation of American men. There's a Stanford University professor since 1968, Phil Zimbardo. What a great name. It was research trends in our culture culminating in a book titled The Demise of Guys. What he sees as trends in the culture are he sees a trend of younger men not motivated to take responsibility for themselves and, and work to help others in their community. They're even new, using new emasculating terms in our culture today used to describe men who are not mature emotionally or incapable of taking care of themselves, such as the man-child or one of their favorites today is the moodle, kind of the man-poodle, Right? Zimbardo notes these men have a sense of entitlement and want to have things without working for them, which can lead to men, and as, as he thinks, it's part of what's driving uh, a difficulty in maintaining long-term relationships such as marriage and fatherhood today. Zimbardo says it's become easier to escape the real world through alternative realities like stimulation through video games or pornography. There are there are, in addition to this, I think, two predominant views of manhood propped up by movies and media that I think are inadequate and damaging for us today. The first is a sense of manhood that I think is attached to this idea of being macho, using strength 
to dominate, imposing your will, doing macho manly feats, which often mean physical feats, being physical, strong, attractive, and a ladies' man. That's kind of what our culture paints, right? This is, this is a view that is extremely biblically inadequate to describe God's idea of manhood. Now, certainly God wants strong men, but the way we define that strength is too often inadequate. I think uh, Chandler Epp puts it this way as a writer. He says, I remember the first time when someone called me gay. I remember who said it. I remember how he said it. I remember the message he intended to convey. For two fifth graders playing at recess, this episode made no commentary on sexuality. Rather, the barb was an allegation of masculinity and my apparent ungodly deficit of it. He goes on to say, no casual observer would have mistaken my nerdy, lanky frame for the next coming of Arnold Schwarzenegger. The 11-year-old me was weak, unathletic, and generally disinterested in matters that captivated most boys my age. According to well-established rules of playground parlance, the shortage of manly attributes, my shortage of manly attributes, amounted to a crime against my gender. He goes on to say, I later came to learn, and then much later unlearn, that this deficiency was also by too many considered a crime against God. This view of manliness actually harkens back to Greek mythology, to the Middle Ages, to the notions of Western movies. And Christian authors and and church often promote this macho manly man who loves risk-taking, taking great physical feats on, and is athletic and knows how to change oil in his sleep. But as Chandler questions, what kind of man are you If you enjoy arts and music and poetry and could care less about sports and fishing and hunting and hiking and beards, this macho view is inadequate and in some instances harmful. A second falsehood about manhood, though, is kind of the opposite pole. It's the feminization and masculation of men in our culture, which asks men to tone down the masculine and just be little different than women. The strength of men today has often has no place, or at least it has a very uncertain place in our world today, because it seems more and more that our culture fears strength to some degree, which leads to either young men who are loudmouth bullies or soft emasculated pseudo men. God's view of manhood is neither of these. Many of us wish that we could look to book and chapter and verse in the Bible to get a very clear definition of what makes a man a man, but the Bible doesn't give such a clear definition, but it does give lots of statements and stories to help us figure this out. It does teach us that man and woman are both made in the image of God, both masculine and feminine are celebrated. And when we celebrate those general differences of genders, we get a fuller picture of who God is. The Bible illustrates some of those differences. Let's take some time to reflect on what the Bible says to say about what it means to be a strong man and what fathering looks like, whether you have children or not, because some of the greatest examples of fathering in the Bible are people who never had children, and even in life, people who never had children are some of the best examples of fathers. The overarching goal for each of us who follow Jesus is summarized in Paul's statement when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
So the quest for true manhood ultimately drives us to the cross of Christ. We run to Jesus not just because he's the ultimate example of what a man looks like, but more importantly, because he's our Savior. The bottom line is, as a man, I don't just need to learn how to be strong and deal with my deficiencies and the pressures of life. I need to be rescued from myself and my sin. I need Jesus. I need right relationship with Jesus. See, whereas the macho vision of man and and the American version of the strong man equals this proud, confident, risk-taking, self-promoting, strongly independent man, the Bible's vision of strong manhood begins with humility and right relationship with God. Proverbs 2, 22 puts it this way. It says, for the reward, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. See, what our culture sees as manliness in men is men who never doubt themselves, who always have the strength to force their will upon a situation and other people, often physically. We see it in the Bourne movies. We see it in the Lisa Nian Taken movies. And, 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 you know, one would think after three Taken movies that you would realize that his character isn't really that great. He's just kind of a bad father and a bad man. But we think the way to glory and honor and often riches is the big feat, the big risk, the stubborn pride to never give up. Certainly God wants us to be strong and, and some of those feats can be, can be godly. But when you rely on yourself, not leaning on God's direction and wisdom and strength, it won't end well. Proverbs 11 teaches us that when it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. See, Proverbs teaches us that manliness and wisdom both start in humility recognizing God's greatness and choosing to be right, in right-submitted relationship with our creator of the universe because he's the only one who can truly impose his will and power on some situation. We don't have it in ourselves. Let's consider the idea of humility further for a minute too. In movies, again, we most often see manhood as the one who never shies away from a fight, who generally forces his will and wins the fight, yet right? Yet as we look at Jesus, the clearest picture of masculinity and and maturity, we see him humbling himself, willing to give up his rights to live as God, to come and live with us and die for us. Instead of being compelled by some pride or machismo, Jesus shows that true strength and manhood is humbly, trustingly, living compelled by the mission of God for our lives a mission to love and to sacrifice and care for others, a mission to represent God well. That's what fatherhood is actually all about, self-sacrificial love. You could define fatherhood this way, as pouring yourself out sacrificially into the lives of others who can't pay you back and don't pay you back. That's fatherhood. Jesus is such a complex person because he doesn't fight when we think he should, And yet other times he's so strongly confrontational. I mean, on one occasion he responds tenderly with patience and forbearance when he stands up to the religious leaders in an angry mob and he rescues a woman from being stoned to death for adultery, treating her with an amazing level of compassion and tenderness and yet also a clarity as to the sin and morality that she needs to deal with. Another time he not only calls people on the carpet, but he even picks up a whip and turns over tables and clears the temple courtyard. 
uh, somebody who I see in today's life who I think represents some of that is Jackie Robinson from years ago. You may remember the story of the movie 42, and he's the first black man to, to, to get into Major League Baseball. Jackie has consistently, had to consistently face vicious insults against him in his, in his race. Both Branch Ricky, the baseball manager, pictured with him who selected Jackie to be the first one, and Jackie were, in truth, real-life followers of Jesus. So knowing the insults, uh, Branch Ricky said to him, you re- you'll recall from the movie 42, and, and in real life he said this to him. He said, I'm looking for a man with guts not to fight back. Because wisdom that we gain from humility can tame the macho in us that has to stand up and help us do instead the wise thing in life, which in some instances is not fighting back. And Robinson's choice, if he really study his life, to not fight back played a major role in opening the door for blacks to enter the world of Major League Baseball and so many areas, other areas of culture as well. See, our culture paints manhood as exhibiting great independence, never submitting, never bowing, but godly manhood starts with dependence and submission to God. And only in humility do we find the freedom and the wisdom to accomplish something much bigger, much wiser than just what we can do on our own. What this leads to is when, when we get it as men is it leads to courage. And what I love about that word courage is the actual Latin word from which we get our word courage has this idea attached to it of, care, of, of heart, the idea of heart, having heart. Courage is having the heart. It isn't bravado. It isn't a tough exterior. It is the heart to act. It is the passion to act. It is the principled compassion and to act. The ability to feel deeply and to act in situations, whatever they are. See, Paul says it this way to the Corinthians. He says, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This false idea of being macho sees having a heart as a weakness, as soft, as girly, some people would say. It misses the true idea of courage and heart. True courage is the ability to feel deeply, be deeply passionate, be deeply inspired from within, and that all emanates in us from your relationship with God and understanding His will and His mission for your life. Which leads us to the second definer of biblical manhood, which is this, the willingness to stand for what is right regardless Proverbs 9 puts it this way. He says, but the righteous. So that, that word righteous, what that means is those who are committed to living in right relationship with God and doing the right thing, doing the right ways of God, living according to those in life. It says they are rewarded. Proverbs 29, 18 says it this way, where there is no prophetic vision. In other words, where we don't know what is right in God's eyes, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law, who does what is right. Blessed is he who has the restraint to always stand for what is right, regardless of what's going on. See, Jesus was strong and powerful at times, even forceful at times. He stood up to the most influential leaders and, and political leaders of his time in powerful ways. But that internal strength of Jesus also calls us to an unmatched kind of strength. When Jesus says, love your enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute you. That's strength. The third biblical definition of what a real man looks like is a man demonstrates reliance on a community of mentors and friends. Proverbs 27 puts it this way, saying, an iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. This verse and so many others directly fly in the face of the strong, independent image of man. Strong men are interdependent, not independent islands of strength who don't need others. Proverbs has a whole lot to say about relationships and friendships. We're going to go on to that in some upcoming messages. The fourth biblical theme of manhood, we live life focused on fathering. A real man is a father. Whether you have biological children or adopted children or not, whether fathering your own kids or fathering the other followers of Jesus or fathering less experienced people at your work, if you do have kids of your own, this means your family is a priority to you. I read an interesting article on the background of uh, Draymond Green recently. Yes, I know that he's the Warriors player who got the second most technicals in the NBA this last season. He's a really passionate guy who too often loses a little bit too much control of his mouth on the court and gets teed up a lot. But off the court, the article examined how Green actually is so passionate and so actively involved in adopting rookies from all over the league. He regularly calls them, he affirms them, he builds them up, and he mentors them even during the playoffs when they could be on the opposing team. He's encouraging them. The kind of thing a father does, isn't it? Encouraging and raising other people up even when they might be your competitor. Allow me to go into a little bit longer illustration than I normally do. I want to illustrate what it means to be a godly man and a godly father by by kind of giving you a picture of the life of William Wilberforce. He's credited as the greatest social reformer in all of history. Wilberforce was born in 1759 to a wealthy merchant family in Great Britain, and his father died when he was nine. His mother was so ill, they decided to send him to live with an uncle and aunt who were social elites so that he would be raised right right? At, a time, at the time, England was largely not Christian. The Wesleyan revivals were taking place, but the majority of England had no real faith in Jesus. Among the leaders and the social elites of the day, it was even worse. They were hardened against Christianity, despising the Methodists as a cult for poor, uneducated people. To the social enlightenment elites of the day, God was at best an impersonal force if they even believed in him. Unbeknown to Wilberforce's mother and grandparents, the relatives to which they sent him were devout Christians who had converted to faith through the Methodist revivals. And they were also personally friends now with the radically converted Jesus follower, John Newton. You may remember his name. He's the former slave trader who became a follower of Jesus and then became one of the most outspoken against slavery. Newton was also the one who penned Amazing Grace, just for your memory. Wilberforce, for two and a half years, was raised as a Christian and was greatly influenced and also mentored by John Newton, who was the family friend. But when Wilberforce's mom and grandparents found out they were converting him to Christianity, they snatched him out of the home, his grandfather declaring, if little Billy turns Methodist, he'll not see a penny of mine. Although Wilberforce initially embraced Christian faith through the diligent efforts of his grandfather, Uh, to extinguish any spark of fanatical Christianity. By the time Wilberforce was 16, he was in a lifestyle of parties and entertainments among the social elite with an aloofness and an absolute skepticism toward Christianity. 
He eventually went on to become involved in politics. He had the most winning personality. He had a beautiful singing voice, so he was actually outrageously popular in London's social circles. At 24, he was elected to Parliament and set in an extremely significant position, and his best friend, who was one of the youngest prime ministers ever, uh, the two of them made this dynamic duo of a power team influencing England across all of its venues. When his mother became ill, William wanted to take her on a long trip and a vacation, so, uh, and he wanted an additional traveling companion as well so he wouldn't get bored on the hours and hours that would be gone. So when his first choice canceled, by chance he ran into an old friend from childhood, Isaac Milner, and he invited him. Milner had since become the Lucasian professor at Cambridge, a post once held by Isaac Newton and most recently by Stephen Hawking. Milner was one of the smartest men on the planet, and he was funny, and he was a good storyteller. And during their trip, Wilberforce discovered his genius friend had also become a follower of Jesus. If he had known, he said, he wouldn't have invited him. But since they were stuck together, they ended up having long, serious theological discussions. And Milner had such vast knowledge of the faith that by the time the trip ended, Wilberforce was in a difficult spot, believing he had been wrong and Milner was right about faith in Jesus. Wilberforce's distress arose because he now believed that God, the God of the Bible existed, that Jesus existed in history, and he was the promised Messiah, and that the scriptures were not silly old myths, but truth itself because of Milner's influence on him. Now he had to figure out what to do about it. Wilberforce knew if he went back to his former life, he'd be the laughing stock if he told him what he now believed. He spent weeks in isolation trying to reconcile what he had come to believe about God's will for his life and, and his previous life. He, his newfound growing faith had become so central to him that he thought he needed to leave politics due to the depth of corruption and instead join a monastery. So during this questioning period, he met again with his former mentor, John Newton, who encouraged him to stay in, stay in politics, saying to him, for such a time as this was he there. So Wilberforce vowed so the, to take his faith into the world of politics and serve God there with his gifts. So he spent two years praying intensely, asking God to lead him into what influence he should make and what he should do. And he eventually wrote down two things that he felt like God said, this is the purpose of your life. The first one was to battle against the slave trade. And the second was the reformation of morality and culture. You see, at the time, British culture didn't have a biblical view. They didn't believe that human beings were made in the image of God, and therefore they were not worthy of dignity or respect. They, they just treated them as animals, right? Then a biblical view led to every kind of evil, to the slave trade, to atrocities toward children and women, to lower class, to the horrible treatment of lower classes and cr cruelty to animals even. Wilberforce's conversion changed the way he looked at everything. He saw people differently, they were made in God's image, and he saw that God was no respecter of persons valuing equally the poor and the rich, regardless of race or gender. The slave trade for him, therefore, no longer seemed an economic necessity, but instead a devastating evil. Now, I just want to point something out here. It's important to note, when you study history, most of the people in the abolitionist movements in England and America were devout Christians. They were serious about their faith, and they believed that slavery was wrong and fought against it based upon their biblical faith that we are all created in the image of God. 
But in England, beyond slavery, little children were disturbingly being forced to work in horrible conditions. People were thrown into prison for minor infractions, and the prisons were so bad that they often died there because of the horrible conditions. 25% of the women in Wilberforce's day were prostituting their bodies to sell themselves, to feed themselves, feed their children, or feed their alcohol habit, or feed the alcohol habit of their pimps. These were all things Wilberforce could no longer ignore or stomach. As his heart grew larger, he was grappling with the enormity of the need and the social reform and questioning how could he bring change. For Wilberforce, it wasn't through stature and strength. He was a very slight man, 5'3". At one time when he was sick, he dropped all the way down to 76 pounds, a really small guy. No, his strength was internal. In his desperation, Wilberforce did the first definer of of manhood. He became a humble follower of Jesus. Begin with humility and right relationship with God. And the reason this is so important is Wilberforce knew he needed a God. Apart from God, he could do very little. And it was this deep sense that God had called him to these needs that actually gave him the courage and hope to weather the setbacks He knew the battle was God's and not his own. He just needed to be obedient, which is our second definer of manhood, the willingness to stand for what is right regardless. Wilberforce is often quoted as saying, let it not be said that I was silent when they needed me. And also, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. He said this in the midst of incredible public criticism and vicious slander, including threats on his life. So every day he would wake up, he would read the Bible, and he would pray, recognizing his deep dependence on God. It took eight years, 18 years for the, to see the abolition of the slave trade. He persevered. Wilberforce as a follower, also followed the third diviner, the finer of man, to, the, the, to have a solid community of Christians to support and advice and counsel and accountability. But this community didn't happen by accident for him. One friend of Wilberforce helped create this community by building a really large home with 12 bedrooms, inviting people to come and live there and stay there often. And other people built homes around them, creating intentionally this sense of community to be about this cause. Finally, Wilberforce knew in order to bring political change, he needed to help change the hearts and mind of the people first. I love how he thought about this. He said he determined to make goodness fashionable. So, for example, the Prince of Wales, the future king, exemplified the problems in Britain's culture at the day. The prince was known for uh, being a notorious playboy, widely celebrated for having 7,000 sexual conquests. The prince set the tone in the culture. But Wilberforce, a popular politician and a well-known popular participant in the social elite scene of England, intentionally lived his life, setting a tone for a different direction. See, Wilberforce and his wife had six children, and every Sunday was spent at home with his family, playing with his kids. Now, to us, maybe some of us, that may seem like normal behavior. I don't know, but, but in his day, it was not normal for fathers to spend time with their children or to observe a Sabbath day. Wilberforce was sending a strong cultural message that being a good father and a family man meant spending quality time with family, making goodness fashionable. In this and other ways, he showed the fourth definer of manhood, living focused on fathering, family priority focused, and beyond that, intentionally sacrificing, investing in other people. 
It's the other, other way as Wilberforce made goodness fashionable was to change the mind of the Western world when it came to wealth and legacy. The English elite of his day believed that if someone is suffering, they had brought it on themselves. So you doing something for them wasn't going to solve their problems, so don't do anything. You're every man as a, as a man to himself. Wilberforce wanted to help those who had money and influence to use the things they had for the good of others, like a father would. Wilberforce spent decades trying to change this mindset in London and England, and today we see this as a core trumpeted value in many countries, but, and many people believe that was the norm, but it really wasn't for much of the world back then. Wilberforce was one of the most successful reformers in the history of the world. And foundationally, it came because of his deep dependence upon God. Wilberforce was so filled with gratitude for God saving him, which actually allowed him to see people differently. Because, see, he included himself in the group of people who were sinful and guilty and was therefore slow to condemn those who didn't see things the way he did. His humility allowed him to do that. And so it allowed him to be great at working with people whom he disagreed because he learned to love his enemies. His graciousness in the midst of so much conflict is credited as helping people come to his way of thinking rather than pushing them away. So after 18 years of continual effort, Wilberforce's dream of the abolition of the slave trade became a reality. And he spent the rest of his life trying to make sure that abolition was upheld and to spread it not just to the trade, but to eliminate all slavery, not just in England, but in France and Spain and Russia and everywhere. And three days before he died, Wilberforce was given the word that England had finally outlawed slavery altogether. What a life. It's pretty amazing. We could hear a story like that and we could think, well, I'm not that gifted or influential. But you see, that misses the point. That misses the point. Are you using what God has given you for his purposes? Do you have a relationship with him so that you know he's leading you and you know what he's called you to in life? Are you deliberately seeking to obey God in all areas of your life, staying real with your failures and in consistent relationship with him even when you do fail? See, Wilberforce's life reminds me of men in our church who walk out these biblical aspects of being men. Scott Marrier is like Wilberforce in that he chose, he, he chose to give up a high ceiling in, in what was already a very successful career in business to invest his life in expanding the vision for caring for the growing population of poor in the suburbs of Columbus, helping bring social reform to Westerville. Scott's also a great faithful friend, the kind who is both honest and encouraging, and he's taken on so many younger men to mentor. I think of Joe Simonet and Mitch Given who are doing a great job raising fantastic families, but they're also investing in the lives of other children through coaching, through being a part of children's ministry, and, and other men through leading small groups, modeling what it means to be strong, principled, doing the right good thing instead of being driven by consumerism that so often drives our faith and our church life. Walt Miller is a spiritual dad to so many by the way he cares for us, by the way he initiates and, reach outs and reaches out and follows up with men all over the church all the time and in the community. A while back, my son Jared, for his final speech project of his communications class, uh, the, the project was you had to talk about someone who had influenced your life. 
And Jared chose Jeremy Shelley, our youth and teaching pastor. The first story that stood out to me at him that made him choose him was this. He, he walked into Wendy's one afternoon to meet with Jeremy and, and seeing Jeremy, he saw Jeremy as he walked in mentoring this other young man who was no longer a part of Quest. So there was no self-interest for Jeremy spending his time there. It was just his faithfulness to empower and father the next generation. Tony Amogby Douglas is, is an inspiration to me. He loves his own family. He's such a good dad, and he's so passionate and involved in caring for those who are struggling with addiction. Tony plays the father role to many people who bringing hope and compassion and wisdom direction to many who can't see their way out of their desperation. If you want to see what a courageous, compassionate, fathering heart for our community looks like, I just challenge you to spend time talking to Tony for two minutes about the opioid crisis, and you won't be able to walk away without a sense of heart and passion and compassion. For many of you in so many other ways, there's so many of you here who exhibit what a real man is and the biblical man is. Seeing you play with your kids, seeing you work with them when they're fussy, helping, watching you invest in your friends' kids. I, I love seeing how many of you are committed to your small groups and, the, and, and walking with other men and, 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 and their families through the ups and downs of life, constantly building other, each other up. I love how so many of you are intentional about mentoring other people formally or just, or just informally, showing up and and building someone up and believing them and offering whatever you can do to encourage them and help them in life. I hope today as we've talked about this that for some of you maybe a little bit of the cultural confusion just may have settled a little bit, cleared up a a little bit today and you get to walk away today with just a little more focus, a little more freedom and even the freedom to celebrate even more who God has made you to be today as men and as fathers. You see, our culture needs strong women, and we also need strong men who bring clarity to others by being godly men who make godly men fashionable and desirable. You do it by using your words to build others up, and you invite people to do the same rather than tearing down. You, you become men who show restraint so you can gain the wisdom to work with people and befriend people even across religious and political and social and economic divides. You consistently invest in other people. Because as men, as men, we are all called to father others. It doesn't matter if you ever have kids or not, which means pouring yourself out sacrificially into the lives of others who can't pay you back and often don't pay you back. But honestly, all of it starts with humbling yourself and following Jesus, realizing how greatly God loves you, how fantastic he has made you, that even in your failure, even when you fall short, he still has a plan for you and a purpose for you, and he's the one who can make your life great and strong and beautiful. So if you haven't decided to follow Jesus, maybe you're not ready to follow Jesus because you have all sorts of objections, you have all sorts of questions, then maybe the way you apply today's message is to find someone who can help you process those questions. Because honestly, if you're like me and like a lot of friends I know, we don't tend to really want answers to some of those questions. We've got these objections, but we'd rather settle for comfortable surface answers that allow us to continue to do what we want to do. Imagine how different our world would be today 
if Wilberforce hadn't been forced to have those conversations and own up to facing his questions and objections with Milner. So face your questions head on. Maybe you're ready to take a step to follow Jesus. Maybe you're just saying, I I believe in him. I want that. I know that I haven't taken it. Don't delay any longer. Do it today. Or maybe you're here today and you've been a follower of Jesus for a while and you're just realizing, you know what? I've become prideful. I've relied on myself too much. I need to press more deeply into that dependence on God. Just let him come to you. And he's going to come to you even if you're prideful and just say, man, I love you. Come on, let's go. Men, would you stand with me? Women, just stay seated for a minute. Men, would you stand? And women, would you just join me as we pray a blessing over all the men in our midst today? Father, I pray that you'd come among us. And I pray for each man here that the dream of making being godly, strong men would become a reality for them, that they would be men who would lead in our culture, making this idea desirable, bringing clarity from the confusion of what manhood looks like in our culture, and just leading simply and well and lovingly and empowering others and finding great joy. I pray that you would just open up horizons of beauty as of, of creating us into fathers, not just of our own children, but of other people in our lives, that we would walk through life full because of the beauty you've created through our lives. Lord, I bless that vision that you have for each and every man here. And Lord, even as we say that, we realize that it's only you that helps us do that, that you are the good Father that helps us realize that. So Lord, we worship you and make that a reality for us. In Jesus' name, would you continue to worship? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.